Interior Motives is a podcast that amplifies the unique voices and interior lives of Black and Brown people from various industries, backgrounds, and walks of life. Visionaries who have overcome adversities and are doing extraordinary things in the world and in their communities, yet like you and me, reflect the complexities of the human condition. Hello, beautiful people. This is Shailen Foster, and welcome to another episode of Interior Motives. Today's conversation is with my esteemed colleagues, Paris Blake and Shandria Riddick. Both will be dropping profound gems and insights on Black women and mental health. You don't want to miss it, so take a moment, relax, grab a cup of coffee or some tea, and let's talk. Paris Blake is a licensed marriage and family therapist who believes anybody can improve their circumstances through basic skill building and positive support systems. With over 20 years of experience and a refreshingly frank approach, she provides highly individualized practical perspective that supports and encourages real change. Paris also enjoys participating in courageous conversations and has delighted in watching her amazing college-age daughter, Madison, navigate her new world of adulting. Shandria Riddick is a speaker and licensed professional counselor who shares a message of hope and freedom in Christ. As a graduate of Amberton University, Shandria holds a master's degree in counseling. As a counselor, she loves to connect with individuals and seeks to guide them with biblical truth. This desire to walk beside those who are experiencing difficult seasons in their lives has given her a phenomenal ability to disarm any audience and allow them to open themselves up to all of life's possibilities. Shandria has been married over 20 years to her husband, Chris, and has nurtured three wonderful children, Joshua, Ileana, and Noah. So without further ado, please be enlightened by the fabulous Paris Blake and Shandria Riddick. Hello, Shandria. Hello, Paris. Hi. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Good. Good. Paris. Hey, Shandria. <laughs> I'm so excited to have you ladies join me today on Interior Motors podcast to talk about such an important topic. I'm thankful that you were able to take time out of your busy schedule to hold space and have this important conversation. How have you been? I'm doing well. I'm so excited. This is, I'm all giddy and happy. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so incredibly just just happy. I'm so excited. I don't know about y'all, but I'm like, yay, I get to yeah. be on Sh- Sherilyn's podcast. This is so great. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I'm a little nervous, but I'm excited to be with Shaylin this afternoon. Yeah. Talk about some Shailen. good stuff. Yes. Well, I appreciate you. This is great. Thank glad you. Glad to be here. Yes. Glad to be here. So how have y'all been? There's been a lot going on or coming out of a pandemic, uh, I hope and pray, as well as there's just been so much going on in the world in terms of civil unrest. And we're in this mental health revolution space right now. How has it been in terms of, you know, just you and your your families, as well as 
navigating your practice? It's been a bit of a, an adjustment. I know um, just the uncertainty or the lack of knowledge we have regarding the pandemic when it first started. It was just a big adjustment. We didn't know what was going on. So family, we were, you know, like everyone else, locked down. And it just kind of changed socially <clears throat> what we were doing as a family. So it made us turn more towards each other. So we got to know each other a lot better and um, as a family. But as far as my practice, yeah, it, it increased drastically just because of the isolation. You know, once we pictured being by ourselves as some kind of solitude became isolation after a while. So yeah, more, more inquiries, more desires to come in and talk about life. Definitely. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I would have to agree with that. My private practice is limited. It's part-time as I still work full-time with the public school district. And I enjoyed the slowing down of life. It was just, I don't know, my daughter came back from college and and we were able to, I don't know, we had a rough 60 days maybe (laughs) getting to know each other again. (laughs) And after that, it was like, okay, this is okay. It it just, things slowed down and I was okay with that. Private practice wise, I'm with Shandria. The phone would not stop. And it was like, oh, I mean, so that was that was kind of nice because you could still basically work from home. But as far as everything on media, TV, I, I just I had to unplug and, and take a step back because it's it's overwhelming, and um, it, it can it can really get bothersome. So that self care really came into play probably the last you know thirteen months. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, I I would agree <laughs> in terms of self-care as as someone in that mental health space. There was a moment where I was wondering, well, how do I take care of myself? <laughs> you know, because I think that period of time I was almost I want to say to some degree emotionally immobilized for a moment. Hmm. You know, just trying to figure out, okay, what's what's next? How do I, how do I deal with this, this new normal? So even for myself, my family, myself, um, it was, it was definitely, this has definitely been an adjustment. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think the definition of self-care had to change as well. Mm. You know, like Paris said, you, you, you have to turn off the TV, turn off social media and just take some time, but you had to, do different things. Like, you know, you, you couldn't go really get your nails done and hair done and, you know, all the things that we think self-care is. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that even in and of itself had to change, just turning right. things off or just having conversations with the people around you. Yeah. Yeah. It just, everything had to, you know, look different. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So in your practice, would you say, I mean, what, were you, what would you say were some of the primary issues folks were coming in or calling you up to get some expertise or assistance with? 
I, you know what? I had a lot of people who wouldn't otherwise seek mental health mm-hmm. um, start calling. They had no experience in looking for a therapist. They had no idea what therapy was. <laughs> so I had a lot of first timers in therapy and mm-hmm. a lot of them came saying, hey, I find, I really do need to deal with this thing. I'm at home. I'm dealing. Now I'm realizing that work and all the other things in my life have been a constant distraction. Okay. And I need to do this. So that was one main thing. And then, you know, I had a lot more African-American women seeking counseling as well. So that even in that aspect, the face of my clientele, faces of my clientele has changed drastically because of that very reason. Hmm. Yeah. I would agree. A lot of people were reaching out, presenting with stress. That's what they would say. And, you know, a lot of it was they were just their new, new normal. They were with each other. They didn't get a chance to stay really, really busy. And so they kind of had to sit with themselves and each other. And so things were arising that they simply, they just weren't used to. I have had majority Black women, I would say, and couples, just Black clientele that probably two years ago, it would have been unheard of yes. for me. Yes. And now that's and it's, it's so refreshing, though. I absolutely love it right. uh, because I've always felt that we could benefit uh, from coming in to a safe place and being heard. Uh, but there's always been that stigma in our community. So for probably a, a, a few different reasons, mm-hmm. that's changed. Uh, so a lot of stress, depressive symptoms, insomnia, yeah. a, a lot of worry. And, and so they're willing to come and talk about that. So that's been really nice. Yeah. When, you, when you say they've been pleasantly surprised, though, I can know I can say that they've been like, oh, this is therapy. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> and so they've been. I always wonder what, what they think that it is, mm-hmm. you know. So, yeah, they come in and then it's. It's almost like, oh, okay, I can do this, you know? So I always wonder what do people, you know, foresee? What do they think takes place? So yeah, yeah. Yeah. even though I have a love-hate relationship with social media, I do believe that it's been talked about uh, on different platforms. Mm -hmm. And and I think it does two things in our community, particularly. I think that it uh, decreases the stigma And I think it has raised just awareness. So the fact that we see people looking like us talking about terms, depression, anxiety, bipolar, they're talking about it. And so I think that probably has helped open the door as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think that there's been so many messages that we have heard really in our lifetimes, you know, growing up in terms of what mental health is all about, what counseling is about, what therapy is about, you know, and I think depending on where your consumption lies, whether it be from church spaces or how therapists and social workers and counselors are portrayed in the media, there's definitely a preconceived notion or there has been about what therapy looks like. Also, our millennials you know, I have millennials in my in my household, young <laughs> adults. And so it's funny because, I, you know, I've gotten more millennial clients. And so it's so interesting that because of social media, they have so much more information at their fingertips. 
they are coming in pretty learned about depression and anxiety and mood disorders in general. So it, it makes the job a little bit easier because they're they're doing the research. Would, would yeah. you agree? Mm-hmm. I do. I think that's good. I think they do a lot of work before they come in and mm-hmm. um, they're a little bit more self-aware. Mm-hmm. Because that stigma is not as strong with them. Like you said, they just kind of, it's okay. Right. <laughs> it's the norm. They know about mental health. They know that, you know, there's depression. And, um, you know, I just kind of think that millennial generation was more of the, it's okay to be ADD. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? It's okay to do that. It's okay to have learning um, challenges. Right. It's, you know, all of that's okay. So they just kind of came out the box saying that, you know, it's okay that I'm not okay today. Yeah. Yeah. Or to, I guess to use uh, the situation's term, uh, pairs, uh, neurodiverse. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> All these terms, all these terms. Yes. <laughs> so um, tell me more, you two, about your upbringing and family background and some of the things that really helped shape you and inform you just to be the people that you are, as well as messages you may have received about mental health growing up. I am from Kansas. And so I grew up in a little bitty town in Kansas, very role bound and rule governed. That's a term we use in in MFT. Um, (laughs) My parents divorced when I was very young, five years old. And my dad really wasn't active in my life, but my maternal grandparents played a huge role in my upbringing and my paternal grandparents played a huge role. So I grew up not really looking at divorce as um, that people didn't get along and that there were conflict. All of my family on both sides kind of just poured into me and and loved on me. And my mother was a single mother. So I saw a woman work and and, and do. So some of the messages that I kind of got from that was that I I could kind of do whatever I wanted, but I still kind of lacked, where's daddy? You know, Mm -hmm. so that was always something that was kind of there. But my my grandparents are very active in the church. We grew up in the church. So very probably strict and rigid coming up. So I grew up, uh, you follow rules and, and you get along with people. That's that's kind of how that, that was. Um, since I was the only child in the house, I always uh, included my friends as opposed to excluded. So I was always very inviting and I wanted, I wanted to just play and get along with everyone. Um, so Aww. what I <laughs> what, what what I realized is as I got older is I had some type I was drawn to the kids who who acted out. I kind of was just curious, the ones that misbehaved in school. And I because I just thought if I did that, there is no <laughs> what is happening here. Right. So I found myself drawn to them and I, I began to volunteer. Uh, it's some of the, like in high school, when we do volunteer work, I would work with uh, like some of the behavior classrooms. I got older, eventually moved to a bigger town in Kansas. So it's like moving from Cleburne to Dallas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I moved to Wichita, Kansas. And I started volunteering for the court systems, the kiddos. Mm-hmm. And I worked with, I worked as a CASA, actually, court-appointed special advocate. So, I mean, 21, 22 I was going into homes and writing reports on what I observed. 
and eventually got hired on at uh, Department of Corrections. So in your early 20s, that was considered a good job. You were working for the county. I was a corrections officer with the juveniles. And my whole thing was, I want to I want to help the kids. I want to help the kids because I just felt like, you know, I was loved on and, you know, let, let, let's help and motivate and support you. And so I started off and I worked almost a decade in juvenile corrections and I started off, I want to help the kids. And then I, I met the parents mm-hmm. and I was like, well, oh, uh, okay, this, this is why maybe they lack some skill set, right? right? And I said, I want to work with the parents. So my undergraduate was in criminal justice because I was working in that field. And so then I decided to go to graduate school, which was marriage and family therapy. Uh, They really focus on systems. So I started really focusing on, I want to work with the adults in this thing and see if we can't get them the tools that they need. So then maybe it will just trickle down to the kids. Mm -hmm. And, And so ever since then, I've just really wanted to work with adults on issues like parenting, um, having healthy relationships, you know, because I'm, I'm wise enough to know everybody didn't have some of the things that I had growing up. Right. So, and I love the work. I love the work. And for whatever reason, when I was in corrections, I seen more of people that looked like me than anybody else. And it was like, they were smart, they were talented. And it was like, why, why are you guys here? You know, and so I just feel like there's some brokenness, mm-hmm. uh, generationally speaking, for us that we really have the ability to turn around if we're just willing to do some of that work. Mm-hmm. So I'm really passionate about that. I always have been. So the fact that they're reaching out now and calling, it's like, okay, we're on to something. So that's kind of my story, and I'm, I'm going to stick to that. <laughs> Please. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I I grew up in Houston, born and raised in Houston, Texas. Me and my dad, I have one sister and my parents are still together. They've been married for 50 years. And and I grew up in a family of uh, my dad had like something like 14 brothers and sisters. And my mom had nine brothers and sisters. So I grew up in a huge family. I was the oldest grandchild on my mom's side of the family. So they loved me beyond words. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was spoiled rotten by them. (laughs) Very supportive. I grew up in an environment with a lot of love. I found myself um, transitioning from pretty much an all-Black kind of environment and school-wise, academic-wise going, and uh, my parents moved, and we were one of the only Black families on our street, and I went to um, an elementary. I was one of the only few Black kids in class, so my whole world kind of changed a little bit. Right. Um, I was introduced to racism and introduced to all the others, um, all the other isms <laughs> in that mm-hmm. environment, but I was so happy when I was younger because I could always come home. That was the only environment. That was the only place I went where I felt different. I always had home. I grew up in the church. Um, so, you know, I had, you know, youth church a couple, you know, one night a week, usher practice, you know, right. one night a week. I was always in church. Choir um, rehearsal. Choir rehearsal. Yes. All that. Um, Sunday service, afternoon service and night service, all that. We did all of that. So that was my life. My life was full of faith. And so the le- constant lessons, I remember my great grandmother saying all the time, take Jesus, don't pick nothing up that doesn't belong to you. Mm. That was her thing. <laughs> just take Jesus. So that was just the thing. And it was an expectation. My dad 
the expectation was it was you had to go to college. There was no, no other question. There was no other discussion. Right. That was like the next step. So went off to school, left Houston and went to University of North Texas and um, graduated with social work. And just like Barris, I got a government job. I left there and started working for Child Protective Services. Mm-hmm. Um, and as that was a, that was a big changing moment for me because I was an investigator. You know, I did all the jobs in CPS. I was only there for four years, but <laughs> did all the jobs. Right. And I, I, I felt like as I was working with them, I just want to help on the other side. Mm. I don't want to be talking to them after I've removed their kids. Can, mm-hmm. can I, I want to make the impact on the other side. Can I have these conversations and help before they, the kids are removed? So that's kind of when I started thinking that I really wanted to go in on, be on the other side of helping and changing lives and changing courses of thinking and things like that. And like Paris, these people were like me. There was no, nothing different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it was really nothing different. Their upbringing, all that. Right. So that was the changing moment for me was just, I wanted to help. So I, I got into, um, I went to grad school, got my degree and just started from there went into private practice and, you know, I've done a few other things since then, of course, but that was just the, the, the transitioning thing. And I think for, I've, I've just taken that the whole way, you know, I, um, I'm a Christian counselor and um, that's my framework. It's not Bible study every session. Now I keep telling, I tell my clients that we don't do Bible study every session, <laughs> but that's my framework um, just to kind of, and that goes along with my life. Take Jesus, don't put up anything that didn't belong to you. So I just kind of made that my, my personal thing is, you know, that's my framework and I live my life um, in my practice that way as well. So, yeah, it's just what I love doing. I love what I do every day. Love, love, love. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. So tell me a little bit more about the messages about mental health growing up that you both received whether it be from your family or people around you, school? <laughs> what mental health? We didn't talk about it. <laughs> well, tell the right. truth and shame yeah. the devil. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't, I didn't, you know, that term mental health, I don't think I even heard at home. I don't think I, that was even a thing. Mm-hmm. I didn't even hear that till I went to college. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, same for me. I mean, we just those things weren't talked about. And even though there was always love in the air, we probably didn't do a good job now looking back at, you know, peeling back layers and problem solving. It was, that's not what takes place. And it was just kind of left alone. So I didn't know at the time, Mm -hmm. but you know, once you get a little older, you feel, oh, okay, that probably, they probably struggled with this or that. But the messages, um, yeah, they were up. They weren't there. There weren't any messages about that. It, you know, everybody probably had somebody in their family that was an uncle that stayed in the back room. Right, right. Yes. No, but <laughs> nobody talked about necessarily yeah, what yeah. what was going on with him. Yeah, and I think I think some of the things, as much as you know, we we like what Paris said, just loved and nurtured and taken care of. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as being. De- um, intentionally talk, talking about conflict resolution or things that are intentional, like um, problem solving, or um, it, it was just never, 
it wasn't said. I think we, I may have received some things taught with, you know, different ways of saying that. Mm-hmm. I remember my dad saying, you know, go and get your, you know, get your degree, you know, make sure you get your degree, make sure you, you know, whoever you marry, you get the same degree that they get. Don't depend on anybody. You mm-hmm. know, it was those kind of lessons. Right. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I remember that, but never mental health. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Interesting. Okay. So I know we're all very passionate about uh, women and mental health and particularly Black women and women of color. So talk to me more about your practices and who you serve, you know, and some of the the primary issues that Black women are grappling with. My focus is on adult men and women who basically are, are, they check all the boxes. They're high achievers, uh, yet they come in and they say, you know, I've just been feeling, and they can't quite put their um, finger on it. So they're struggling with some symptoms of depression and, and they worry, some symptoms of anxiety, but they don't look the part. So I think when people do talk about mental health, and especially in our community, and you think about depression mm-hmm. and, you know, what that looks like, um, people think that you're cr- crying all the time or you're withdrawn. Right. Uh, and so my website kind of really talks about the, the high achiever, how damaging those messages are, because it could really keep people who are struggling, but they seem to be getting up and, and going about their day. It keeps them from reaching out. So I really focus on, and I love it because those are the people that are calling me. Um, these are people that appear mm-hmm. to be okay. Um, so we really focus on being able to identify um, their struggles. That's hard for a lot of people to do because they've been considered, I guess, the strong one. Right. So that definitely is is a, a is a niche just based on the phone calls that I get. Again, it's a, a lot of black women that are calling and mm. they feel like they've done everything that they're supposed to do, and yet they're struggling with some things. So I, I really focus on, and sometimes those folks are married or they're in relationships. And so they, they present as couples mm-hmm. and then we end up just addressing those things as individuals. So that's kind of the, the clientele that I've been working with and I really like it. So what are some of those, those issues? You, you, you mentioned the couples, the, the women present, but they're usually in a couple. And what are some of the struggles that the, they're having within their relationship? I think that again, sometimes they're thing they've been living a life that's very I don't want to say superficial, but things have been bothering we're, we're truth tellers today, Tara. For <laughs> <laughs> truth seeking and truth speaking. Yes, ma'am. Um, I do see a lot of women who maybe appear to be making more money than their spouse. They may have more education than their spouse. They're looked at as nothing's wrong with you. Uh, and, and so they kind of drift away from each other. And, and I'm going to speak for, for the males as well, because there is some, there's some insecurities. It's a hard time for them to celebrate the achievements of their wife when they just, they're insecure. And, and, and one of the things that we end up talking about and I, and I do have to speak 
for the men, this is what I see, that the women come in and they know how to talk because they, they have girlfriends and we talk and we express ourselves. And we talk about how the, the males have not been socialized to do that. Right. Sometimes they don't seem like they're open or they're willing to discuss those things. And, and because they never have before. They weren't allowed to talk about emotions and feelings at the age of 10 or 15 or 20. And, you know, they grow up and they still don't know how to do that. So I, I just feel like what I see is that they, have, they haven't been able to hear each other. So they come in and they practice being able to verbalize their wants and their needs. And they've never been able to do that before. A lot of conflict with regards to not hearing each other. So some shutdown. The woman, of course, can talk her express. She can express herself, yet she feels like I, I hear the term settling a lot. And I don't like that term. That's probably another show, another day. <laughs> and so that that's what I see. I see the woman say, you know, you don't listen to me. You never ask me if I'm OK. Right. And, and I hear the husband say, you're always fine. You never have any problems. So, again, that goes back to this this strong woman. And, and you probably touch on that a little yeah. bit. Yeah. is that we see, and it's portrayed on TV, sometimes we appear that we have all of these things, and yet sometimes we just need a hug. Right. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the males have a hard time seeing that mm-hmm. just because of the stuff that they have going on. So really good stuff. And that's what I see with the couples. Mm-hmm. Mm. What about in terms of, I think maybe, Shandria, you could speak to this, I think you brought it up earlier, women navigating between home and work life balance. Is that a big one for you? Yes. I think because of this expectation, whether self-imposed, I think, but even culturally imposed Mm -hmm. (laughs) that we do have to have it all together. You know, we are in, in what that's supposed to look like. And I think a lot of our um, expectations are, well, a lot of our behaviors in response to those expectations are, are a lot of it is like trauma responses, mm-hmm. you know, like I, I shouldn't have to, I shouldn't have to, I can't depend on anybody. I'll do it. It'll just be me. So, and I, and because I haven't been able to depend on body in, on anybody, that means I shouldn't depend on anybody and I, ha- I shouldn't have to. So it's, it's, it's a hard thing because there's no grace given to themselves about not being able to do it. You can't be a hundred percent, a hundred percent of the time. So that's kind of the, when I'm talking to them, when I say things like, you know, well, tell me about the trauma you experienced in your life. And they're like, what are you talking about? So getting all the way down to this event or this kind of thing that you went through as a kid, we consider that in this place trauma. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and some of the things you learned out of that experience, you have now created those things as your rules to life. Right. And there is no way that you can live your life free from depression and anxiety and other struggles. Mm-hmm. Um, if you, you can't live free, if you don't change those rules that you have for yourself to be a hundred percent, a hundred percent of the time and not ever need anybody and consider yourself inadequate when you do, then you have a lot more struggles to come. You know, you, you can never get out of this cycle of depression and anxiety and feelings of in- inadequacy because it's impossible to do. So yeah, they come and they're wanting to 
for me to help them feel okay um, or help give them tools to be 100%, 100% of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they're often shocked when they come in and I say, no, mm-mm, no, they, that's impossible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so in terms of that expectation of themselves, I mean, I think that we obviously grew up in an era where it was about education and productivity and powering through whatever adversity came your way. Outside of their family's expectation, where do you think it came from? Mm, I, well, like, uh, you know, it's more, uh, I think there's an, an expectation to be okay. Like there's, you have to do it. What other choice is there? Mm. So, you know, kind of button up and, and put one foot in front of the other and you keep going. You don't stop because you're not only, I mean, I heard, I heard it growing up too. When I left, like you're, you're not anywhere by yourself. You have, you're, you have your family with you. You know what I mean? Like you're, you're a representation of the community <laughs> and you have to be successful. Right. Right. Yeah. So there's this sense of not only am I representing myself, but I'm representing right. family and you, you dare not embarrass. Exactly. Family. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. That's a tough line to walk. What about in terms of social media and comparison culture with the rise of Facebook and Twitter and Instagram? It is just blown up in terms of how the culture, the media culture impacts a person's psyche, their self-esteem or their sense of competency or accomplishment, or even just how, how a sister looks, you know, these days. (laughs) I mean, talk to me more about that. I I think when we talk about messaging and and, and the strong black woman, I mean, just look at some of the shows. I mean, even if it's how to get away with a murder Mm -hmm. or um, what was the one with, with Kerry Washington. Scandal. Yeah. I mean, I think it, the messaging is there from, from the media. It, it is from family when they really encourage you to, to be successful. And what I find is that they really promote you to check those. You go to school, you do this, you do that. I didn't hear a lot of how to, how to have healthy relationships. Mm. I didn't hear that a lot growing up. And I, I don't hear my, my friends or my colleagues Within our community, we don't talk about healthy relationships, yet I would probably say 80% of my clientele, whether they come in by themselves or with someone, it's relational stuff that's going on. Right. And, and so I think this, this whole, this strong woman, I've had, a, I've had clients come in and call, you know, they'd say, well, you know, I'm a strong, I'm a strong woman. And so sometimes because of that, uh-uh, and I'm like, okay, hold on. Cause that's just, that's just all my soapbox. I said, hold on. Tell me what that means. You know, and sometimes they're, they have to take a minute. You know, what, what does that mean? What does that look like? I have a supervisee and when he comes in to present cases and he's a black male and he started off presenting his case and he was like, okay, this lady is such and such. And, you know, she's a strong black woman. And I had to go, I said, hold on. <laughs> I said, well, I said, what does that what do you mean by that? He said, well, you know, um, he said, oh, you know, my mom was a strong black. I said, I need you to be able to describe what it is that you mean, you know, and sure enough, he's, he's a quick learner. He came back and he was able to say, he was able to describe things. He said, you know, she is college educated. 
Um, she's a good steward of her money. She's active in her children's life. So he was, so I look for people to be able to not use just that blanket statement because I think it could mean so many different things. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it could mean negative, you know, strong means you're not workable or you're stubborn or, you, you know, right. so yeah. that's one of the things yeah. that whoever says it, I said, wait a minute, what, what do you mean? Does that mean you can get hit six days a week, but the seventh day you and you are okay? What does that mean? Right. You know, so yeah, that's good. I think right. we have mm-hmm. to start challenging. We have to start challenging some of those, those terms. And, you know, social media can either help or hurt. I, 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 social media, I, I'm going to let Shandria talk about social media. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I... I'm a little I, unstable on well, social media. I, I, I hear a lot. I think a lot of the women that I see and men, I do see men as well. But as far as what I hear, it, it's a huge influence. You know, the pictures of family, the pictures of that couple. You know, I have a lot of single black women in my practice Mm -hmm. and those um, pictures that they see of these happily uh, married people, you know, the little 30 second snapshots of life. Right. And say that that, again. Say that again. (laughs) Yes. 30 second snapshots (laughs) because they have this, they, they pull, they give a narrative to it all. Right. They, they, you get 30 seconds. And then when they, by the time they, you know, come to me, they have a whole narrative about what it's supposed to look like and what that means. And this expectations of what a man is supposed to be and, and what she's supposed to be. And, you know, all of, all of the expectations are from these 30 second bits right. or these pictures um, professionally, I'm supposed to be on my grind. You know, this, this person, you know, made a sock one day and now they're bajillionaires and, you know, I'm 25 years old and I'm depressed because this job I got only pays, you know, right. <laughs> out of money. And now I feel like I'm a failure. So it's a huge influence on um, a lot of us. And I, and I, it's not just millennials or Gen Z's, no. you know, it's everybody have, we have these expectations of these pictures that we see these highlights of people's lives. And it, it, they're very impactful. I mean, I just bought something off the internet the other day. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just that influential way. I'm like, oh, that looks great. You know, I, I can't say I, I bought something, but I definitely doubled and tri- triple clicked. On- yes, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, I I did. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna get that. You know, but it's it's you know these images and things that are that are passed to us, and you know we we're eating it up, and unfortunately, a lot of coping and expectation and real realistic things like realistic things that happen in life like you you know those who who are educated and then you get a job because you don't have any experience you can't go from you know graduated from college and now you the CFO you know and I think the expectation of what they're seeing is I shouldn't take that long right like it shouldn't be this hard you know I, I see all these accounts where people are just famous and and wealthy because of what we're seeing, what they see every single day. Mm -hmm. So it's just kind of altering the picture of what life is like um, and what it's supposed to be. Right. Um, Yeah. But as far as the good of it, I think like Paris was saying earlier, because now it's all over, you know, mental health is okay. You know, it's, (laughs) it's okay to, to go to, you know, um, to a therapist and talk with somebody. But, but do you um, think to some degree it's it's almost being romanticized in a way? 
like it's chic to have a therapist. Right. Yes, yeah. right. definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Not I want one, one of the teachers. Not just one, maybe <laughs> three of them. Yeah. You know, they, yeah. It's and like, I, you know, know, I'm not mad. I'm not mad, but um, yeah, I, I just, I just wonder to what extent, like, where are we going with this? Where is this all right. going to? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it is, kind of, it's changing. I can say that. I think that I, I know a lot of my clients, I can speak to, to my experience and a lot of my clients that come in are very surprised at what therapy actually is and the work that's involved. Right. Um, so some of them stay and do the work and some of them, they, that's not what they're looking for. I agree. Mm-hmm. I agree. They're just not ready. Mm-mm. Some people aren't ready. So the ones that you have found that, you know, therapy per se is not what they're looking for. Were you able to help them conceptualize what they were looking for? Yes, I try to, you know, when they're Mm -hmm. saying, you know, and I I give my clients the freedom to say, if I'm not helping you, please let me know that. Mm -hmm. If this is not something that, you know, you feel comfortable with or what we're talking about, you know, how it's addressed, you don't feel comfortable, feel free to tell me and I can I can help find you somewhere to go, you know, mm-hmm. else to get, get your needs met. And so because of that conversation, yes, I think they, they, they're not expecting the difficulty that's associated sometimes in conversations yeah. and having to reexamine themselves and see themselves sometimes having some, some responsibility in their own decisions. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, a lot of them want to come and shift blame and it, in lack of a better better term and not really do a lot of self work so um yeah i've i've had to say well probably something like you you want to do yoga yeah you know what i mean <laughs> you just you want to do yoga where you want to center yourself and you want to just breathe and that's that's the kind of thing you're you know that you're that you're looking for it's not therapy Right. Yeah. I remember it's funny because uh, some years ago I had um, a black uh, woman coming in. She was having relationship issues. They were, she and her husband were on the verge of a divorce. Very educated, learned, articulate, full of personality. And I will never forget the moment because we had been really kind of doing a lot of self-reflection, a lot of sifting through the presenting issues, a lot of accountability. And I will never forget when she came in one day and she was like, okay, I'm just going, I'm just going to put it out here like this. Today, I'm just, I want to pay you for just to be, uh, I want to pay you to be my sister girl, my, my, my girlfriend today. Mm. (laughs) And so so basically she was just saying, I, I just want to I just want to sit up here and vent, you know, not necessarily have any sort yes. of direction mm. in where we're going. I just, you know, I want a girlfriend today. I want to sit and kiki and ha ha. And um, that's what I want. And because I'm paying you, that's what I expect. Wow. What do you say to that? <laughs> I think that some of the, I think for some of Black women, that sometimes they just need a safe space to come and and be heard and maybe be validated yeah that that you know their world is real i think there's power in just being heard right so sometimes in the beginning it's just we're just joining and you're just coming and getting used to being vulnerable and talking about some of the deep dark corners of what's going on with you 
that's empowering. And, and so, again, I wonder what people think happens, you know, when you come to therapy and it doesn't require a lot sometimes of the therapist because they have so much to unpack. Sometimes they just need to come and do, sometimes they do just, they just need to talk and be heard. And sometimes they'll say, Oh, I feel so much better, you know, and there hasn't been any magic wand or anything that has taken place. So oftentimes they need a safe place. It it seems like a lot of them uh, are operating uh, in isolation. They, they don't have anybody that they feel like they can trust. So they just hold everything in. And, and, you know, sometimes they they become they have physical problems. They become ill. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And you would look at them and think, oh, well, she's a nurse and she's, you know, and she's she has health issues. So I really have seen how un, unaddressed stress it can, um, you know, just wreak, wreak havoc on the body. And, and oftentimes they just need a place that they can call their own. Yeah. No magic wand. They just need a safe place to come and. Once they get a taste of that, they, they do see, okay, now I can really address some other things once they become comfortable with that. Right, right. And it's, you know, I'm glad you, you said that. And I think that some of it is in retrospect at the time, not being as seasoned in private practice. When I look back on a case like that, I, I realize I would have probably handled that a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that she didn't have the language And I wasn't exactly sure exactly what it is that she was wanting in that moment. You know, being being a younger therapist and not as intuitive and, you know, really dealing with just a lot of different types of, of women clients. We are diverse. We're not monolithic. And so um, I'm glad you said that, Paris, you know, because validation yeah. and to have someone see you, to truly see you um, and yeah. to be known, that's huge. It is. It, it is. It really is. It really is. I, I, I think that culturally speaking, as Black women, we, we like being familiar. We like that connection that you understand me and you see me. And I think because of that, as therapists, we can, like Paris said, that relationship can be established in that environment that that you trust that I see you and I hear you, even through these conversations initially when they're coming in, and that you're understood. Right. And um, and when they when they get that connection, then the work begins. That may be four or five sessions, six sessions right. in, or longer, <laughs> or longer. Yes, and. And and by the and how we inquire into their lives, right? And how we how we form our questions and and when we're probing as well and trying to understand them. I think, like you said, that you know, they they come in thinking, I just need a girlfriend that I can sit and talk to. But as clinicians, we that that doesn't I I'm okay with that, knowing that I like you said, the they don't have the language to label what they're needing. Um right. I hear. I need to be heard and seen. I'm not, you know, I need someone I can talk to that can see and actually hear me. And there's a safe place where I can just let things out. Yeah. I think that, that I think you guys bring up such a good point just in terms of being in that familiar place, Mm -hmm. you know, because so many of our, you know, black women and, and men, you know, we tend to be, underdiagnosed 
and under-treated. And a lot of us fall back on the familiar. You know, we fall back on that. That's why so many of our our folks, our community, our family members still, you know, will go to a pastor or someone yes. in their church because it's familiar. It's a safe space for them. Yes, definitely, definitely. And I think even in those spaces, hope that I've seen a little bit of change in that area where they that even in those spaces, the, the view of mental health is changing, is shifting as well. Um, but you're right, we do go back to what's familiar and in hearing things like diagnosis, medication, things like that are still very um, touchy, you know? So, but yeah, I think it, the, it's shifting slowly, but surely. Yeah. Slowly, but surely. Yes, <laughs> yes slowly it's shifting. Surely. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, and there's more and more pastors now that are actually going through the process educationally to become licensed clinicians. So that's, you know, that's a part of the shift. Mm-hmm. So Pierre, yeah. go on. No, I was just saying, I agree that that I, I have seen a lot um, of, of, of the shifting in, 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 at the church, especially that they are, are, are being a little bit more comfortable with, with actual mental health, being a licensed counselor or mental health person. But, you know, I've also seen certified <laughs> Churches have their own certification process for counselors and that, you know, <laughs> maybe they look different, but yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, um, Paris, you had mentioned about the relationship piece, and I just want to double click on that some more in terms of, I know we've talked about a lot of women in toxic relationships, you know, they can be upwardly mobile and educated and have all these wonderful things going for them, but somehow find themselves in toxic relationships due to maybe unresolved family of origin issues or trauma, so on and so forth. Tell me more about that. And I guess I I really started to think about this even more because not only with you know, some of the things we've seen in the media, but even, you know, folks on YouTube that are, that have these mega platforms. I, who's the guy? It was um, the image consultant, Kevin Samuels. Mm. And are y'all familiar with him? Mm-hmm. I've seen Somewhat. him. I've seen him a couple of times. Yes. Okay. And, you know, <laughs> I guess, and I had, you know, my niece who's a millennial, she was like, you need to look at this. This is a, just a hot mess. And I guess the dynamic of seeing a educated Black woman be on a platform with a man who's not licensed in any particular way, other than I guess he's, I don't know, he's a, he calls himself an image consultant, but he's giving women advice on how they need to level up in order to get a man. Mm. And so I, you know, I watched and I was cringing, just cringing the whole time because it was kind of like, I just was, I was really mortified at the fact that this man had this type of platform and, and, and more so that this woman was actually really just taking in and consuming all that he had to say about 
how she wasn't this, how she wasn't that. He was putting her down and it resulted in him literally cussing her out at the end. Wow. Yes. It was, it was so troubling. And so I, I guess I'm just wondering, like, I think some of it, you know, when it's on YouTube, it, there has to be some level of performative, some level of performing or being performative, but there, there's there got to be something else to be said for, I guess, some of the culture now um, as it relates to people having these type of platforms, because it's not just him. There's Derek Jackson, who mm-hmm. was just called out on the carpet for him not practicing what he preaches, talking about how men need to change their ways in terms of how they treat women, but then come to find out that he's covering yes. up some of his narcissism yes. and narcissistic ways and, and, mm-hmm. and a, you know, toxic relationship as a controller in his relationship. So I, I, I don't know. I'm troubled. Me too. I, I, I came across Kevin Samuels just kind of clicking around like on the internet, you know, just scrolling. And I, I, I too heard a phone call that it saddened me, one, to hear that level of abuse from someone who said, you know, I guess I don't know what he describes himself as. I don't know what, like you said, an image person. I don't know. But um, the level of abuse that was happening on the phone call. Um, with the young lady that that made me really sad, but it also made me think how how people want knowledge, people want to change, they want to do things differently, that they lack direction. No one's in the like Paris is saying, they have no one in their life telling them these things. Mm-hmm. So I think he, in his narcissistic way, <laughs> seemed comes across as confident and that he's an expert and that he knows what he's talking about. He has these successes. He's very definitive in his in his language yeah. and the rhythm of how he speaks. It, it assumes knowledge. It assumes as expertise when he's not, you know, right. just how he presents himself. Right. And so it just speaks to how so many people are hungry for truth. How do I, how do I become better? How do I, you know, women, how do I get into this relationship? How can I have a healthy relationship? How can I do this? And they're, they're, the the motivation for them seeking this stuff out is pure. I think they really want to be helped, but it's such a toxic, it's such a toxic, toxic place because I think it's very abusive. Very. Um, And like you said, they are picking it up and eating it. And it's, it's, it just makes me sad because I know people want truth. Yeah. They want to be better. They want healthy. They want relationships that aren't toxic. Yeah. So, yeah. And at the end, what I would say about what I would say about the gentleman is, again, (laughs) deep breath, deep breath. (laughs) Right. No, it's just like, okay, because it was so obviously inappropriate. One of my first thoughts was, okay, this is scripted and this is this is a part of his platform. Like this has to not be real. right? Right. It was like this is scripted. And then the other part is, if it's not scripted, and this is truly, then he is not as troubling to me as then the women who are calling into him. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. why would you call him and ask him? When we know, like, you know, what he stands for and who, I don't know who would call him. So, again, um, I, 
I would like to lean towards, that's probably scripted to help promote who he is. That's kind of how I look at social media sometimes like, okay, this has got to not be real. Mm-hmm. It, it can't be because it was so, <laughs> it, it was so preposterous. It was just like, she's asking and he continues to just, you know, dig in. And she's like, well, no, no, okay. So those kinds of things, it's hard for me to even listen to. The relationship piece that you talked about, I just think in our community, it seems to be relationship-wise, it's broken. We don't, I just think that's an area that we could really, really, really improve on and just kind of dive into how do we help our community? Our children are typically in in broken homes. Mm -hmm. And and then we kind of see that, you know, you have an overworked single parent and, um, a parent who who's not available and then the kids grow up and sometimes they repeat that same thing. So okay. I think we need to have more, we need to have more relationship guidance. It's something that's not talked about. I don't hear that. I hear people saying, you know, individual, do this, do this, do this. You don't need a man, do that. And so, but 80% of the women that are in my practice, they're coming and it's relationship issues yeah. that they're presenting. Right. I mean, so whether we teach our daughters about relationships mm-hmm. or just tell them, oh, for the gold, they still end up at 40. They're in therapy and they are in these unhealthy relationships. Mm-hmm. And when I tell you these women are way makers, they, I mean, they do it. These women are, they check those boxes and, and they just are, they're go-getters. But then when it comes to desiring for connections, for whatever reason, they've gotten themselves into situations that um, it's just, it's really harmful and it's unhealthy and it has, it has set them back and they're struggling. So I think there's definitely a need for those types of interventions, but where does that come from? And I don't think Kevin Harris, and I just don't know how he's allowed to to be on there, but it's not regu- it's not regulated. Samuel, yeah, it's not it's regulated. Not, it's not, of course, it's not regulated. Yeah. So I, when people say I'm not gonna I'm not gonna really be hard on him when <laughs> when he's offering his services and people are calling him. Yeah, and it's kind of you know it perpetuates this whole pick me pick me mentality for mm-hmm. women. You know, it's almost like the the narcissist codependent dynamic is being played out in front of us before yes. our eyes. And it's, yes. it's, it's disheartening, you know, and we, we talk about, we, we jokingly talk about the whole notion of mama and, and daddy issues, but like Paris, as you said, you know, there's so, I, I think all, I think a hundred percent of us choose partners based on our family of origin stuff, you know, mm-hmm. what, what happened, what didn't mm-hmm. happen. You know? That's right. You know, I, and I think having the language, having the understanding, having the education of what, what are your, what, what are your attachment styles? Right. What Absolutely. is your attachment style? Yes. That's, that's critical. I would, I would advocate for anybody to do serious study on attachment and their styles before they even Im- think about embarking on upon a relationship. I think it's really important for our young folks to, as well as our older people, you know, our older folks that are seeking um, long-term relationships. And I think that we don't talk enough about those pieces. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. If we're going to have geography, I mean, uh, what is that called? There's algebra, algebra one, then I don't know what that is. But all these geometry, geometry, Mm -hmm. if we're going to have those and and speech Mm -hmm. in high school, I think it's a necessity to have healthy relationships Mm -hmm. because that's where you kind of see, you you see the high schoolers and, and the choices that they're making and, and then, you know, they're 40 years old and you say, well, you know, what's been your your guideline for a healthy relationship? And they'll tell you they've never had one. And it and it plays out in all areas of life, you know? It does. Even on the job, you know, if you see folks that are codependent and have poor boundaries, it's liable to play out in their workplace. And we don't even think about that. That's true. And it also it also goes to longevity and commitment, you know, Um, I have some millennials who they're like, okay, well, it's hard. All right. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) You know, tough. I'm out. You know, commitment, having commitment for a lot of them is like, okay, I've been here for two years. I've been in this job for two years and I'm bored and let's go. You know, it's time for another one. So, yeah, I agree that all of the that that or family of origin and those you know, ways of atta- attaching and communication, all the expectations, mm-hmm. yes, need to be addressed. And, and I don't think it's being, like Paris says, it's not being addressed at all. At all. Absolutely. Not yeah. at all. Mm-hmm. And, and then we held, because it's not addressed, we go into relationships thinking what we know is the correct way. And so now we're filtering everything through this unhealthy, unhealthy mm-hmm. filter. <laughs> and relationships don't work. Yeah, you know? I, I think, and also I think, you know, folks from our generation and before, I mean, I think that we definitely romanticize relationships and didn't really deal with the real on what happens from day to day, what happens after right. the two-year uh, romantic period wears off and you're dealing with real life bills and children and careers and unemployment and, you know, sickness. Mm -hmm. So there definitely was kind of this story, this fairy tale notion of what a relationship should look like. But also, you know, when we're thinking about toxic relationships, just the, when you brought up Paris, how to get away with murder and scandal, there's this whole toxic dynamic of the up and down, the struggle, the uncertainty. And we have we we have drank the Kool-Aid, okay? I think that a lot yes. of people, women in particular, have drank the Kool-Aid. Because when you really think about some of the movies that we we love, the dynamic is, is toxic. It was funny on another podcast, my guest had mentioned Love Jones, that the soundtrack was dope, but that but the movie was kind of this classic. And so mm-hmm. when you really break down that movie in particular, there's, there's, it's problematic. Yeah, it is. I, and and to, to, to your point, I think that we as women um, are the targets. You know, those things are, are consumed by us the most, the, the romantic, you know, the movies and things like that. And um, yeah, I went back and looked at, um, I was watching Boys in the Hood mm-hmm. the other day. I have such fun memories mm-hmm. of that movie. <laughs> and I went and looked at that movie. I was like, oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah. What's happening? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just relationship wise and how women were portrayed in that movie. 
it, it just, yeah. And, and we don't see that as, you know, it's entertainment, mm. but a lot of it, we, we, we don't see yeah. as toxic, yeah. you know, yeah. I mean, and we do fantasize about yeah. those things. Yeah. Even I was thinking like love and basketball, which is to me, that was like my number one movie. But when I, when I unpacked it a little bit more, I'm thinking, you know, here's a young lady who had, who had just as promising of a career. And she was in this, this space of having to decide on, do I choose me or do I choose my boyfriend? And so mm. I think so often uh, women in particular, uh, young and old are in that position. So, so I think something just as simple as that, what you just said, needs to take place in groups of young people. Uh, just, you know, just that particular incident. What do you do? I think, I think we're not having those kinds of conversations. Like, what do you do when you're at that type of crossroad? Right. I don't think teenagers are even given opportunity to process that. And we don't process it as adults a lot of times, you know, relationships seem to be, they seem to be problematic for most of the people that, that I see that that is what is keeping them up at night. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. So how, how are you, you know, helping them navigate these women and men navigate the landscape, the dating landscape, or even their committed relationships? You know, it's, it's interesting and I don't try to do a bunch of hard work. <laughs> you know, you ask them, why, you know, why are you here? Right. And sometimes that takes a couple of sessions. Mm-hmm. They honestly don't know. They just know they don't feel well. You know, something's not right. They can't sleep. They cry. Doesn't keep them from operating, but they just know something is not right. And sometimes I tell them, you know, that's your sixth sense. That's, you know, that's truly divine intervention when you just can't explain it. It's something that's not right, and but they have such a hard time with it. So a lot of times I just tell them, you need to write down, what are your goals? What do you want to achieve by seeing me? How will you know when I've helped you? And that takes some time for them to figure out, you know, and sometimes it's not what they initially thought. So you help them by empowering them. What is it that you need to work on? What's what's wrong? And sometimes they have to take time to figure that out. I, I think I approach it, you know, with more of expectations, like what, what from, from their, you know, upbringing, what your relationship looks, you know, ask some questions about relationships and what the expectations that, that they were <laughs> taught as far as, you know, what relationships should look like. And a lot of times they do come to the place where it is a blank piece, but they've just kind of pieced the assumptions of certain relationships together and what they've seen on television. And, and I just kind of look at, you know, what those expectations are and go from there. A lot of times they don't have the words like pairs. You have to try to have them kind of figure out you know, what's going on and, and what words do you have to use in this play, in that space, right? So in this relationship space, a lot of times we don't even have the language to even to describe some of our expectation and describe some things that we're feeling and 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 why we're crying and why we're upset. And they, they don't have the language. So starting mm-hmm. from there, just helping them giving the, the the language, speaking words to it, but also examining those expectations and examining what relationships 
what they think relationships are supposed to look like and um, giving room for them to in in that counseling relationship to kind of figure yeah. that out. Where did I get this from? Who told me yeah. that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting. I think in the last several years since This Is Us has been on, I know the character Randall that Sterling K. Brown plays so eloquently. <laughs> he's 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 been lauded to some degree as being this example of what a Black man should be in the context of a relationship. I think, you know, his wife, Beth, played by Susan Kalichi Watson, I believe, she embodies to some degree a very, I would say, multifaceted, strong, but yet nurturing Black woman. A lot of layers, a lot of dimension to her character. And so... I've had this conversation with many people about Sterling K. Brown's character, because I think when I first saw the character, I think the first season I was like, okay, finally, finally, we see, (laughs) you know, Black love portrayed in such a beautiful, vulnerable fashion. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts about that? I, I absolutely love the relationship that's portrayed on This Is Us. I really do. Because I think both of them do demonstrate a level of vulnerability um, towards each other in in their relationship, that um, she can be strong, but she she's a strong woman, but she can also display those areas where um, she's not and she's wrong. And there's a space in their marriage to be wrong, not be perfect (laughs) and not be perfect. Exactly. But I love it. And and I I do know that that's not just a television thing, that there are black couples out there that that that's how they relate to each other and that there are healthy relationships in the black community. There are healthy marriages and people do know how to provide a space of safety and security in marriage where I embrace your imperfections and I'm here with you in those deep, dark places and I'm not going anywhere <laughs> and I can see you at your worst and I can love you through it and I can yeah. wait for you. Yeah. I love it. I think it's great. And I love watching them love each other and love their family and their girls because we can do that. And that's, that yeah, happens. It definitely does. It definitely mm-hmm. does. But I think what's interesting also is that, um, you know, one of the things that Randall, his character, Sterling K. Brown's character, Randall struggles with is anxiety. And so, you know, with having a generalized anxiety disorder, there are things that come with that. So sometimes it's messy. Sometimes it's imperfect. Sometimes there's an indecisiveness. Sometimes things look not as definitive as you may like. And I think that, as you said, Shandria, seeing folks who are flawed individuals that are able to still show up and really kind of persevere and sit in the messiness together is um it truly is a beautiful thing but i but i think for some folks within our community even seeing that type of union or couple on screen makes them feel uncomfortable well and a part of therapy is helping people become comfortable with being uncomfortable mhm 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 
We need more shows like that. Absolutely. I agree. I agree. I think that, I think it's probably, it may be more men <laughs> that, that struggle with men being portrayed in a vulnerable light or being expressive, emotionally expressive. You know, the whole notion of men don't cry and just being comfortable seeing a Black man cry and it's okay. There can be multiple truths. He can cry, he can be emotionally expressive, but he also can be a rock and a a strong man as he provides and shows up for his family. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that toxic masculinity, just like we were talking about that version of that strong Black woman, I think that toxic masculinity is, is something that that we are still trying to make a dent in, in, in counseling. I think it's where I know I see it the most because most men won't come to counseling. They, you know, I do have some men that are, yes, they come and that, you know, they're trying to work on some things, but historically women will come first. And that's been, that's been my experience anyway, that they, that they're the ones that are calling because of of that toxic masculinity, masculinity. I can't cry. I can't show any vulnerability and not, I'm not saying that they're, that their motives behind that is, you know, is wrong. I think their motives behind that are wrong. It's not. I just think we've been taught that, you know, they should be the person we should be able to lean on. Right. And they have to come strong. They have to, they have to come with the um, knowledge and the ability and the, the strength to just, stand there and be a rock. And that's a tall order, y'all, for people who haven't, it is. haven't been given any guidance. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I see that, you know, I have, you know, when, when I was working in the high school, the, the young women were ex- expecting their same age boyfriends right. <laughs> to have these, the, these emotional tools. <laughs> the emotional to intelligence, carry. Huh? <laughs> yes, to carry this adult relationship. And I'm just like, y'all, y'all are both 15, <laughs> right? So yeah, I just think we have that toxic masculinity is something that we're, we're having, we're still trying to make a dent in. I, I, it's not, a, it, to me, it is not a significant right. dent yet yeah. in that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think first we got to really come into the, the space of it exists because a lot of us are in denial yes. about that. Yes. Yeah. 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 So, so interesting. You brought up high school. I know that we've all worked with teenagers in marginalized communities and just some of their issues back to the attachment. Some of their issues is certainly a result of uh, their family of origin issues. And so when we're dealing with folks that are in marginalized communities and we know the realities of systemic racism and folks getting the adequate mental health care that they need, how do, you, how do we as, I guess, Black clinicians bridge that gap? I know it's a hard, it's, it's, it's kind of an evolving question Bridge the gap of mental health. Is that right? Yeah, bridging the mental health, bridging the mental health gap, but but particularly because there's such great disparities with marginalized communities. Mm-hmm. I guess helping folks to see the the importance of obtaining mental health care, um, being consistent with it, 
But at the same time, because of systemic racism and because of folks not having as much access to resources or even Mm -hmm. health insurance, Mm -hmm. there's that gap. You know, there's a lot of our students that and families that are Black women head uh, or, or led, I should say, and they're just in a in a tough situation. You know, they've got a lot going on. They got a lot mm-hmm. to contend with. They may have their own mental health challenges, and they're trying to raise quality young people. Yeah, I think, you know, in in working in the high school, I think um, being a part of a lot of community things that were happening, I was able to have a lot more conversations about mental health and expectations and was actually sitting with parents. You guys know, just kind of talking with them about how to get help, that it's not impossible to get help. And there, there, there are these, you know, I'm, I'm doing a community kind of forum in a couple of weeks where groups of heads of other organizations who may not know what mental health opportunities or help that's out there. I know a lot of people just don't know that you can get free counseling, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, sometimes yeah, you go ahead, go ahead. I said that they just don't understand that there are, even with their jobs, that they they do have EAP, <laughs> that you can go get three of, you know, whatever many sessions and you're, and you're, if you do have mm-hmm. insurance, they do pay for it. And some, there are some places where you can get vouchers for counseling. I know I'm on therapy for black girls in their mm-hmm. directory and they have a program to give vouchers for people who can't afford counseling for women to go here. We're, we'll pay the therapist for you. Just go and, you know, be a part of this, um, here are the, your mm-hmm. vouchers. So there's, there's a lot of help out there. I guess just more information that, um, that th- this is how you can gain access to some of these yeah. services. Yeah. I think just yeah. taking the opportunity whenever you can to have those conversations and, and, mm-hmm. and advocating for that, uh, being in a high school setting, you know, for all kinds of reasons, sometimes our our, our black children, particularly our boys, uh, they, they get disciplined more. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody ever thinks about treatment for them. Oftentimes, I remember sitting in a meeting with a with an administrator, and the administrator said, "All I know is that is one angry young man." And I said, "No, he's a child of an alcoholic, mm-hmm. and he's in survival mode." Mm-hmm. You know, so I think taking any yes. and every opportunity you can to educate and say, you know, uh, trauma is the real big thing right now. But I don't hear people when it comes to our children, I don't hear them talk about trauma a lot. I don't hear them say, you know, that is, gosh, there's so much trauma. And, and what can we do to intervene? We just typically are punitive. So I think uh, one of the ways to bridge the gap is that you're always uh, just being that advocate and you're reminding yes, people that uh, these behaviors come from, uh, you know, it's a trauma response. Mm-hmm. And so that our children are provided opportunities for uh, the right intervention instead of just being, you know, punitive and trauma on top of trauma. Absolutely. Yeah. I think the trauma is, is definitely minimized it, along with out of any other ethnic group or race. Mm-hmm. We are underdiagnosed and undertreated for depression, anxiety, and trauma. Absolutely. But we're overdiagnosed and treated for psychotic disorders. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Substance abuse. Even how it's defined, even how it's defined, I just just finished a certification for Mm -hmm. trauma 
certified clinical trauma professional. And I just went through this whole certification program and even the examples used, even in diagnosis in the DSM-5 and what is constituted as a trauma, people with PTSD, like these things have to be met in order for it to be, you know, like we have to diagnose as a trauma. And if not, we have to use things like, you know, adjustment disorders and things like that. And I just thought how how our community isn't even represented in represented even in the check marks right so if just having you know something happen in you know in your home not having your dad growing up not having your mom or that you did have your mom but she went to work every day but you were still there's still a sense of not that you were abandoned but there's still a sense of doing things on your own or some things that they've you know it's they don't consider that trauma right and so a lot of our kids and adults are walking around with this, this trauma history and these trauma mm-hmm. responses, but you're right. We're, they're not even diagnosed because you can, if you go anywhere, there's really no yeah. checklist. Yeah. Yeah. And we're definitely not really represented fully in the research. No. Absolutely. We have the yeah, symptoms, right. Absolutely. Yeah. you know, we have those yeah. symptoms, but how how we're, we're checking those things off, you know, we can go through the checklist and say, OK, yeah, these people can't mm-hmm. sleep at night and they do have this anxiety associated when they're triggered. They do have these shortness of breaths and, and panic attacks. But what you describe as the event, they they haven't they didn't see anything right. blown up. Right. Right. But I, I just thought that that was it was very frustrating right. that in, in, it's just frustrating that even in mental health, sometimes I think, well, a lot of times that how we're being diagnosed and underdiagnosed and overly mm-hmm. diagnosed, it's just culturally we're we're not getting helped. <laughs> yeah. So culturally and, and speaking of um, how important would you say that it is for black women in particular to be matched or to find or to begin treatment with um, a Black therapist? Do you think that that is kind of a... Yes, I think it's very important. And I, and, and I, I can say that, you know, I, maybe there's a particular issue, you know, here and there that it would be okay for it to be someone from another culture. But I think it's really important that uh, Black women see Black women or Black men because there's an understanding culturally of what's happened in your life. You know, like if, if, you know, we talk about childhood things and things that may have been, you know, getting spankings, right? (laughs) I think we talked about getting spankings and that's considered a child abuse and, you know, let's call child abuse or whatever. Let's go uh, call CPS and getting the authorities involved. Coming to a black counselor, you were, um, yes, I was spanked as a kid. That's heard differently. Mm -hmm. And we can go from place to, okay, let's talk about that. And how did that impact you as a go straight to, okay, well, let's talk about the trauma of being abused when you right. were little. So I think how things are framed and that connection and being familiar is really important. Relationship is really important. That's an important dynamic. And I think there's just an unspoken kinship Absolutely. that is very important to the therapeutic yes. uh, you know, alliance. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. So in retrospect, now I'm going to go back to you personally. In retrospect, what would you tell your 18-year-old self about life, love, and self-acceptance as well as relationships? Um, 
I think for me, because I was just, I just wanted everybody to get along and have a great time and let's just have fun. I think I would tell my 18 year old self that it is okay to not include everybody, um, that the company you keep is very important. And I would encourage, I would encourage my 18 year old self to, can't say leave home early because I left after high school, but um, I don't know, traveled more. <laughs> but I think the main thing was it was important for me to include everyone and, and um, I needed to just be more particular about the company that I keep. So I think sometimes they can hold you back when you include everybody. So yeah, that's what I, that's what I would say to my 18-year-old self. I think I would say to myself that you're okay the way you are and it's not your responsibility to take care of everybody, the feelings and maintain the the feelings of people around you is you're not the source of their happiness nor they're yours. Cause yeah, I I just think that, you know, if, if I could just tell myself, study your study you more than you're studying everybody mm-hmm. else <laughs> and to trust yourself, trust your own decisions. And learn to trust yourself. I guess that's better. Yeah. Learn to trust yourself. That was, that was a big thing. I think, you know, as, you know, society, women are taught to care for people around them and you're okay when the people around you are okay. That was a big thing that I learned. I wish I would have have learned that a little differently. Mm-hmm. That, you know, the people who aren't happy around you probably don't need to be around you. It's not up for, to you to make them happy right. with you. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, um, yeah, I wish someone would have. I wish I would have known that I would definitely, I definitely told my daughter that <laughs> um, who recently mm-hmm. left home. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, beautiful uh, uh, lessons to impart. I was uh, thinking you, you both have navigated awesome careers in mental health, as well as navigated families and, and motherhood. And so what would you say? What would you say are your greatest challenges of motherhood as well as your greatest joys? Biggest challenges, it has been trying to stuff every lesson in, <laughs> trying to figure out what I have to make sure when they leave my house that they are fully mm-hmm. equipped. Raising kids who have been privileged as far as they've always had a roof over their heads, they've never had to really want for anything, to learn the lessons that I learned, not that I didn't always have a roof over my head, but, you know, there's just a different place I am socially now that my parents weren't. They were, they were hard workers. And I learned a lot of things about, you know, working with your hands and things like that. So the biggest struggle is for them to learn those same lessons in today's world. So that's been my biggest challenge where just to teach them lessons as they go out in a world that just, that's not for them. <laughs> so that's been the biggest challenge that I, I really want them to learn some great lessons um, when they leave and trying to step it all in. The greatest joy is that they are just to see human, this they're so lovable <laughs> and to watch them grow into great mm-hmm. human beings and just to see them uh, rise and fall and get up and dust themselves off and keep going. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for me, I don't, it's really hard to put into words. Motherhood is like my greatest joy. I love it. Mm -hmm. I think that I take it seriously. And so I've been pleased with, with how I've 
prioritized motherhood. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's wonderful to see them, to see them, you know, grow and do well. I tell people all the time, you know, adolescence is that second terrible twos. And, you know, adolescence for me was was really difficult, particularly, you know, losing my parents at the time when they usually were the the mediators. <laughs> they could help me, you know. Mm-hmm. But I think the hardest thing for me is because I worked, you know, in high school and I'm seeing all the struggles that adolescents are going through. You want to make sure that you, you, you try to do everything you can so they don't go through any of that. And, and mm-hmm. I wanted her to see life and make decisions based on my 52 year lens that I see through. So the hardest thing is really accepting that they have to go through their own stuff mm-hmm. and in that's a hard there that's a hard yes it is yes it is <laughs> you just you just have to be there to you know you have to be there to make sure okay um we'll just I'll be here when you you know yeah no longer no <laughs> so longer the that, manager and moved into the consulting yes so it, it's yes. very joyful mm-hmm. she um she, she's just a bright light and I'm extremely proud of her but it, it's difficult you know particularly with social media and exposure that our young people have. It's just, I'm not, I I can't be there, you know, and hold your hand. So that's the difficult thing is that they have to go through their own stuff. And, and sometimes you sit back and watch and you just hope and pray that you've provided them a foundation that, you know, they know how to come back to. Yeah. Yeah. Don't you think that, that there's, far more things that access them than even when oh. we were. Oh, younger. absolutely. I, I you know didn't have I a mean? cell phone. So that's, I didn't have a- yes, it's just far yeah. more, you know, things in their lives and former hands and former voices yeah. in their lives. So they have a, a bigger, I just think that they just have a bigger mm-hmm. fight. They absolutely they do. And it makes it's our jobs. And so parents, yes. Yeah, so parents need to kind of be up on the things that are going on because your kids are exposed to them. Yeah. You know, which is, which and is a whole nother job. It's hard. Yes. It, that, that's, how can we do that's that? That's when people have those. Yes. That's when you have, you know, you come up with a six week program. So I get <laughs> yeah, I will, I, will, I will give the 411 on millennial culture. <laughs> we have to share that because yeah. I found that parents are they're hungry, too, because they're just at their wits end. But it you know, it takes I'm certain if I could play some of the music that's out there, a parent, I said, everybody just listen to this song and make the parents sit there and listen to it. I promise you people would say, turn it off. I I, I, know. And not realizing this is what's inside your child's ear every morning. So I think the parents are just unaware and and we have to, we have to help them to help their kids. As well as the visuals, you know. Absolutely. It's a bit much. Yeah. I mean, and we talk about sexuality to be able to access porn so easily. Oh my gosh. And you know, there's still so much again stigma attached to having the conversation. I'm just like, we have to, you know, whether it's in a church environment or at the kitchen table, we have to have the conversations about what our young folks are consuming. On we all do. levels. We do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. So talk to me um, about, you know, dealing with disappointments in life, whether it be career-wise or just grief and loss of a loved one or just at a time which you 
may have uh, had your own mental health struggle, so to speak. Because, you know, at the end of the day, we're all human. I remember working in community mental health. And I remember a particular moment where I was working with a client. She was dealing with the loss of her son. And, you know, life, life happens. Life goes on. We have clients that are dealing with a multitude of things, grief and loss being one of them. And I remember so vividly, and I, I never take calls. I never take calls generally when I'm in session, but I had a particular call and that person kept calling multiple times and it let me know that, there, you know, something was happening. It was an emergency. So I took a call and found out that a dear friend of ours was killed in a car accident. And, you know, in that moment, um, I didn't know how to act or respond, but obviously mm-hmm. I was in a vulnerable space, right? And I've never, you know, I, I, I've... Sh- I self-disclose very little unless it's for the benefit of the client and as well as showing emotion that's just not a commonplace. But in that moment, I tell you, I was very transparent with my client. And again, this is the client that's going through her own grief and loss. And I just said, you know, I just found out that a dear friend of ours um, just passed and um, it was very sudden. She was young and I'm just in a really tough place right now. And it was so interesting because it was almost as if that our connection expanded because in that moment, she was able to see my humanity and my vulnerability. And um, it was, you know, I'm not saying I'm not advocating for those moments, but it was a moment of connection of, you know, I'm, I'm sitting in this space with you as I have many sessions before, and now I'm actually experiencing something that's, that's similar. And so it was a real, it was a real moment in that therapeutic relationship. And so I was just kind of thinking out, you know, in particular, I ask these questions to majority of my guests, but as therapists, how do you deal with life disappointments and grief and loss and these types of concerns, uh, sadness, uh, when things occur and still show up in the best way with your clients? Well, for me, I've always had a mantra that a good therapist has a therapist. And um, I will reach out. um, And it doesn't even necessarily have to be clinical. It could be, you know, I need guidance and direction on my private practice, or I need to, I need supervision, you know, I need to talk about a client. So I feel for me, listening to lots and lots of stuff all the time, it's very important for me to have um, somebody that I can go to, to kind of unpack all of that. So I definitely believe in reaching out uh, and having somebody um, to talk to Loss and grief, I definitely, particularly as growing up as an only child, losing both parents probably within the three years, um, have experienced loss and grief. And your parents hit a little different than than grandparents Mm -hmm. for whatever reason. You know, the grandparents are older. But for me, I have to just make sure that I take care of myself. I I don't see clients um, for loss and grief issues. 
if they call because they recently lost a loved one, I refer them and just tell them why. You know, for my own personal loss of grief, I don't see those clients. I also just treasure life much more. I, I, I try to not be in conflict a lot. I, I just treasure life and I think I'm at, at more peace about things after experiencing things like that. You just look at life a little different. You, you you count your blessings. And that's why I said the pandemic, I enjoyed life slowing down. I was okay being at home. So I think being a therapist, uh, you have to make sure that when you're not in a good space, that you're able to own that and say, you know what? I need to cancel yeah. my clients yeah. today. It's not a good day for me. I, I need not to go to work and so I kind of practice that and, and, and model that for my daughter as well. You need to be able to say when you're not okay. So I definitely don't try to wear the cape, <laughs> that, that strong cape or whatever you want to call right. it. Uh, just identifying that I'm not always okay and I need to take a break. Yeah. And that's okay. And, that's okay. Um, and reaching out for support when I need to, because whatever reason, I think when you have this title, this, this therapist, this calling, it's, uh, it can wear on you. You know, my flesh sometimes doesn't want to be bothered with people, but then if you know, it's divine calling when you're there to help people, even when you don't want to. So you have to accept that and just have boundaries. Um, and sometimes I think with relationships, with friendships, they feel as though because of what you do, that you you may not need support. And and I used to think that like, gosh, nobody ever really asks me how I'm doing. But, <laughs> you know, but then I kind of figured sometimes I just don't think they have the skills to, and I, and I don't take it personal. I think sometimes they feel like they don't know what to say. Ask, and that's okay. I ask, that's okay. Harris, I ask. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you're a therapist. So I think that you, you just have to know that as a therapist, sometimes yeah. you need to go where you can be heard and, 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 and validated and not expect your therapist to do that for you. Right. So that's why I met with that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I agree. I think, um, I do also think, you know, therapist needs Mm -hmm. a therapist Mm -hmm. (laughs) having somewhere to go. Um, that's that environment that's created that's safe that you can be vulnerable in. Um, and I also think um, accepting, you know, like Paris is saying, your own vulnerabilities, um, not expecting myself to always have all the answers if I am in crisis, <laughs> to be vulnerable enough to reach out for help and say, you know what, today I'm, I'm having a hard time. And to have, to have someone there that you can go to has always been my thing. I was having, having a, a place to reach out. But in, in, on the flip side of that, I think as a therapist, I do enjoy because I'm not this strong, long ranger person who haven't had these life difficulties. And I've only read all this stuff right. in a book right. <laughs> that I have, have had these life experiences because of my own ability to be vulnerable during a, a counseling session or to have some kind of self-disclosure. Mm-hmm. I think that has deepened, deepened the relationship or the, the security and safety of an environment. So clients can do some deeper work to, they say, oh, okay, you went through that. And you know, you've, you've, you've also failed at right. some things, right. you know, that they, that they, that that encourages them. So yes, accepting those vulnerabilities, reaching out for help and taking care of mm-hmm. yourself, saying no, no is a complete sentence. So I cannot be a therapist to my friends and no, I can't see. <laughs> <laughs> I can't see. Uh, okay. 
I can't see them today. And I, you know, those, um, and I've learned that, you know, I don't have to be available, you know, 24 seven to everybody. Mm. So yeah, being able to set those boundaries um, have helped as well, but yeah, just taking care of yourself, reaching out and asking for help. Absolutely. Wonderful. I had to coin your phrase, Shindri. I think I heard you say it several years ago. I'm a therapist, but I'm not your therapist. I'm not yours. <laughs> I love that word. <laughs> yeah, yes, it's amazing. Yes. It's almost like people have this 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 sensory or this this radar when you're out and in the grocery store or somewhere or, or even in when you're going to seek a service, like being in a massage space. It's amazing how they just naturally want to unpack, mm-hmm. and you're like. Uh, can I just be in this moment and be still? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. yeah definitely yes. boundaries is, is huge and, and uh, knowing your limitations. Absolutely. So you brought up being vulnerable and this idea of failure or not maybe perhaps meeting an expectation of yours. Has there ever been a life disappointment or a setback that really was, in retrospect, the catalyst for a breakthrough or a big success for you? I think. Um, hmm. You know, I, I don't know. I, I can't say that there, you know, that there hasn't been any hard things, but I think there are different things that have happened in my life that I can look back on and say, because I didn't make my choice. I made a choice that I thought was expected of me because I was trying to fit an image that was given Mm -hmm. to me because there were expectations that I, that that I was trying to meet that weren't my expectations um, in several different instances of my life. Just kind of dig into a place where I had to, I I got tired. I was exhausted (laughs) of meeting all the other expectations and trying to make sure the people around me were happy. And I realized that I was never choosing me and I didn't even know who that, who Mm. I was. So that began this journey of trying to make sure that I listened to myself and learn myself and make those decisions. So, you know, and that was one thing I think that that back when I was before I went to grad school that that my husband helped me make that I, that's what I wanted mm-hmm. to do. Even coming to the, the the decision of being a therapist, you know, had a lot of self work in asking myself, you know, I yeah I want to be on this other side, but what did that mm-hmm. look like, and why was I doing that? And that was that was a calling and helping me, you know, get to that place and actually learning myself. Yes, definitely, it did help me make the decision to become a therapist? Well, no, that's a tough one. Mm -hmm. Probably just finding myself in, um, I think, realizing that I had actually uh, been in an unhealthy relationship. Just realizing, and when I talk about maybe some of the clients that I work with, maybe they're checking all the boxes and yet they're in, you know, they're in an unhealthy relationship that, you know, intellect, that's totally different from matters of the heart. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think realizing that no matter if, you know, you know what you know, 
that you can still find yourself in a in an unhealthy place right and trying to figure out you know how did you get there and making sure that you don't make those choices again mm-hmm. I think for me that was kind of life-changing like just because you might you know be smart or or know these interventions you can you can find yourself in something as well so for me it's life-changing knowing gosh you know better so do better mm-hmm. and moving forward even though when it doesn't feel good you know mm-hmm. yeah so for me it just helped me enjoy life more knowing I for whatever reason things didn't work out there's still a life to live and enjoy that. Really enjoy that. And I think sometimes we can get stuck. I definitely, you know, as I'm older, it's a little easy for me to say that now, but man, late 20s, 30s, you feel like, you know, you have you have to be in a relationship or you have to be married. And a lot of a lot of people are fighting that. Like yeah. that keeps them up at night. Right. And so I think just realizing that you can enjoy life regardless on your terms on your terms mm-hmm. your your paradigm shifts and life just looks different it does life just looks different yeah, it yeah. Does. yeah. Mm-hmm. such a huge huge word particularly for our young women absolutely yeah yeah so definitely what would you tell young folks that are wanting a career in mental health as a therapist what negative advice would you give them or insight? Negative? N- no. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, is that, is that your question? Negative? I said, <laughs> what would you tell young <laughs> who want a career in mental health as a therapist? A bit of insight. Hopefully it's not negative. It can be. No, no, no. I thought you said negative. I um, Get a therapist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> do, do some work. work. Do your yeah. own work. That's yeah. That's good. Do your own work. Yep, I agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that. That's probably a good one. That's mm-hmm. a good catch-all. Make mm-hmm. sure that you're able to sit on the other side. Yeah, absolutely. That's, mm-hmm. that's really it. I, I think we all agree on that one. Yeah, being vulnerable is hard. Being vulnerable and, and have that expectation when you're in mental health that someone is vulnerable with you, you, you kind of have to know what it's like absolutely. to be vulnerable. So, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So we're at the rapid fire questions one of my favorite parts so what would you say is your favorite book favorite i know there's so many you know i'm typically yes. about five of them but at a time. I, I will i will say dr robin smith she used to be on oprah oprah yeah uh-huh lies at the author yeah the yeah. truth about great marriages that's a great i love one. it that's a great mm-hmm. i love it mm-hmm. Oh, a fiction for me, Small Great Things by Joda Picoult um, was really great. That's a great fiction. Uh, nonfiction. Right now, I'm, uh, I, I just started reading J.M.R. Tisby's The Color of Compromise. Oh, I'm reading that, just the history of, of race in mm-hmm. the church, which is a fantastic book. I have to read in mm-hmm. doses. <laughs> but yeah, those are my two favorite at this time. I love reading. So any given time, there's yeah, a different yeah. one. That's mm-hmm. me for sure. Favorite place in the world. Mm. Could be a favorite vacation that you've been on. 
Oh yeah, hands down, Turks and Caicos. Mm. <laughs> favorite, favorite beach, favorite people, favorite of all time. Yeah, Turks awesome. and Caicos. Right now, I guess it was uh, New York City. Okay, yeah, another great place. Mm-hmm. I miss New York. I never know where to go when I get to New York. It's just so many places. <laughs> where do I go first? I think what that's good. I yeah, like that's too. the beauty, the mm-hmm. hustle and the bustle of it all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So if you had to choose one meal to eat for the rest of your life, what would that be? <laughs> it's, Come closer to your, your, your sound device. Let me see. For the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is this is probably not the politically correct answer. I don't know. Maybe we're not being, maybe, <laughs> we're not being right. I mean, <laughs> I really like catfish and greens, but I would probably answer your question and say pizza. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. You know what? I am eating a plant-based diet right now, but in all honesty, one meal, I would love a good medium Mm -hmm. steak and some, some good macaroni, truffle macaroni and cheese. Decadent. But but that's not. Right. I'm not eating. You know, I'm plant based. Plant based. So, what's for your a while. favorite plant based meal? My favorite plant based meal: roasted Brussels sprouts, roasted sweet potatoes. Mm-hmm. I can eat every that's single yummy. Yeah. day. <laughs> Love yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Yum yum. So, if you could sit on the couch, drink tea and coffee with three influential women, past or present, who would they be? I would say um, definitely currently uh, Stacey Mm -hmm. Abrams, definitely. I have a lot of questions. (laughs) Her past would probably be Fannie Lou Hamer. Yes, definitely. And I think um, I I, I would hate to say, I think I would say, I I only say Oprah Mm -hmm. for this reason. Because I would ask her questions that she has. I feel like I have questions that no one there has ever go. asked. Her. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those are my three. <laughs> I, w- I would say my mom, mm. Michelle Obama, mm-hmm. oh, and me. I don't know. It's just something about Condoleezza Rice. Mm. I, I want to talk to her. She mm. seems, yeah. There's there's mystery mystery about something. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. 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 Now she's pre-social media. Yes. So she was done and out of the picture before <laughs> yeah. social media you came. So I agree. We might have had a little bit more on her. <laughs> right. We had we, yes, we had a little bit more right. information if we if social media was absolutely. involved. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And lastly, if you could impart a message to the world, particularly black women, regarding the importance of mental health and the therapeutic process. What would you say? What would the message be? Well, my message in my practice is freedom, that you can live your life in freedom, even having hard times, that there are things that you don't have to keep and wrestle with for the rest mm-hmm. of your life. You can actually go through th- go through hard times um, without having to carry the weight of that for the rest of your life, that there is freedom. You can live in freedom. Doesn't mean that everything feels great, but it means you can be free from toxic relationships you can be free from still dealing with those um, triggers and tra- traumas from, you know, 
whatever relationship currently or um, formatively mm-hmm. growing yeah. up that that you can really live in freedom. Yeah. You can. Yeah. I want to say something just as simple as love who you are, but I think I would preface that with find out who you are and then love who you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You got to love yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Definitely. Yeah, I, my my go to is always you are enough. Mm. Yes. Yeah. So, in closing, tell me more about some of the things that you two are working on in terms of maybe a project or kind of where you want to take your practice, and as well as where can people find you? Now, I am working on my exit strategy from my full time job <laughs> and heading into full-time private practice mm-hmm. like Chandria. Yeah. <laughs> and and that's exciting. It is a little stressful all all in one. Yes. Um, but it's like it's that good excitement, right? Yeah. It's like, ooh, I am so ready. Um <laughs> and I can college you today. Um, my website is Paris Blake lmft.com and that's lmft is licensed marriage and family therapist so paris blake lmft.com that's my website uh so that's kind of what i'm working on right now is just executing that my exit strategy so i can see clients full-time awesome well i am in you know i'm in private practice full-time and so seeing clients mostly but but moving more um, I do have groups that I have. I have, y'all remember the whole relax, relate, release from a different world, but just, I have groups available that I've tailored to, to uh, Black women to come to this, into a space where it's safe and we can have these discussions about life and the things that matter to them. So expanding that, those groups have the, those relaxed groups that are twice a month, um, eight groups that are six week um, commitments that women come and we get a little bit more detailed about anger and shame and things like that. Um, so they can be kind of educated on what those terms mean and, and, and how different things are impacting their lives. So I do have those and um, I have on my website, shandriariddick.com. They come and they can kind of see what service they need. If they want to just come sit with a group of people for twice a month, they can. I do have women every two weeks, they're there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they come every two weeks. They don't feel like individual counseling is something that they need, but they can come to an educational kind of group where it's open. There's not anything heavily therapeutic going on, but it's just discussion on a topic or some of them enroll in the relate group. Um, and I also have courses on teachable that people can go and just kind of pick a topic, something simple that they can kind of sit and, and learn from. So I'm just trying to see how many different ways <laughs> I can um, be available. That's not necessarily just sit down one-on-one therapy right. that get people a little bit more comfortable to be in vulnerable spaces. Maybe, mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe they will consider coming to counseling, but some people don't think they need it. So, but I do want to be a resource for mm-hmm. that. So that's why I created those groups. So that's pretty much what I'm doing right now. Just groups, seeing people one-on-one. Awesome. Awesome. And so where can folks um, access your book, Shandria? On my website. Yes. ShandriaRiddick.com. The the book that I wrote about marriage, Mm -hmm. it's a great, it's a great resource. Um, I teamed with Michelle Stimson, who is a 
um, fictional writer, Christian fiction writer, mm-hmm. and she wanted a, to write a, book, a nonfiction book about marriage. So we kind of teamed up together and she wrote these fictional scenarios and I um, addressed them therapeutically. It's great. It's a great tool for churches. They've been used in Bible studies for churches. Couples use them just to kind of connect with each other to start conversations. But yeah, they can find that on my website, shandriariddick.com. Awesome. And on Amazon, it, it can purchase on as well. On Amazon as well. Okay. I will make sure I leave y'all's information in the show notes. And I just want to say thank you to both of you. You have been wonderful. I greatly appreciate your insights and your expertise that you've shared with the listeners. And I hope to talk to you guys soon and have you back again. Would love to continue the conversation. There's so many things to unpack. This was not long enough to cover, (laughs) but just a a morsel of just some of the issues that impact uh, Black women in mental health. But I thank you again. I thank you. Shaylin, I just want to say to you, I just really appreciate your bravery to have this platform. (laughs) (laughs) That just (laughs) being brave to um, be open to conversations that benefit, that may not be typical conversations that you hear, that I do appreciate your bravery and um, transparency and just having this platform where people, you can have these, these sorts of conversation that challenge and also educate. So I'm so excited for you. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It was truly great holding space with my phenomenal colleagues, Paris and Chandria. I am so thankful that they were able to take time out of their busy schedule to join me today. Both have such a wealth of insight and expertise. Please check out the show notes for their contact information. You know, as a therapist in private practice who works with a large number of Black women grappling with mental health issues and someone who has personally struggled with depression and anxiety, I am so grateful that we are in this mental health revolution space and having more transparent conversations that destigmatize and normalize this journey. However, the reality is still that Black women in medical and mental health spaces are disproportionately underdiagnosed, misdiagnosed, undertreated, though we have the greatest risk factors for experiencing mental illness than any other population. The World Health Organization has suggested in their research that clinical depression and anxiety is a public health crisis in Black and Brown communities, with Black women at the forefront of this issue. We must continue to expand the research, treatment, and access to resources in marginalized communities and amplify this conversation globally around mental health. It's not just for the month of May. It's an ongoing conversation. On another note, I want to shout out Chantrell Lewis for using her talents as an artist, cultural critic, and director to introduce the powerful documentary on Netflix, in our mother's gardens. It was inspired by Alice Walker's earliest essays on generational feminist love. However, this documentary explores the complexities, the strength, the struggle, and resilience of Black women in relationship with their mothers, their grandmothers, 
and the richness of cultural legacy. I absolutely loved it. It was truly beautiful. So if you get the time, check it out. I'm also currently reading You Are Your Best Thing, curated and edited by Tarana Burke, founder of the Me Too movement. She was also in the documentary and the one and only Dr. Brene Brown, who uses her qualitative research on vulnerability and shame and makes it relevant to the Black experience. This anthology is a wonderful collection of short stories from prolific writers and visionaries. It's a must read. I'm about four essays in and truly loving it. Thank you so much, listeners, for tuning in and supporting Interior Motors Podcast. You can reach out to me at interiormotorspodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's interiormotorspodcast at gmail.com. I would love to read your ideas and your personal stories of overcoming. So until next time, remember to practice good self-care and good soul care. And as always, listeners, be well and be blessed. 